guys and welcome to episode 27 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. As usual, you're joined by your hosts, Tierra and Jack, and we have another Q&A episode this week with many, many questions, some of them really good, so we can't wait to get stuck right into them. Sweet. All right. So the very first question comes from Sam Hodgson, and it says, thoughts on carb cycling for a lean bulk pros and cons. So I guess a good way to start off this question is to just explain what is carb cycling? So carb cycling is basically just a variance in carbohydrates. So that can vary from even 25 gram reduction from one day to another, or like the whole very, very low amount of carbs. So less than 25 grams versus a very, very high amount on, let's say your training days versus rest days. Well, like what are your thoughts on carb cycling? So essentially the lean bulk aspect will come down to energy availability. And if you have fixed protein and fat each day, then essentially you will be varying carbs regardless. So I would say that the vast majority of people do carb cycle if they change their carbohydrates on a day-to-day basis, or even if some people have higher carbs on their leg days versus their rest days or their normal training days. So for me, I have lower carbs on my rest days by about 50 grams, and I have higher carbs on my leg days by about 25 grams, sometimes even higher. So I guess that means I carb cycle. So Yeah, but I guess essentially the whole idea of carb cycling really just comes back to fueling for the work required, which means, you know, just provide your body with the right amount of energy, which is required to perform, you know, a certain amount of exercise, essentially. And this is very common in the circles of especially elite level athletes who are training, for example, sometimes twice a day and have ridiculously high energy expenditures compared to their rest days, which could literally be thousands of calories less energy expended. So if they're expending that much less energy and that magnitude, then they just don't require as much fuel. But I think the main message we really want to get across is that it is there's nothing necessarily magical about carb cycling. It's really just providing yourself with the right amount of calories in order to perform whatever task you want to do, whether that be exercise or just running daily errands. Yeah, exactly. Like, again, a lean bulk will just be come down to energy availability and your rate of gain. So, for example, a leaner rate of gain might be around 1% of your body weight increase per month, as opposed to something like 1.5 to 2%, which would be a bit more aggressive and you gain a bit more fat with that. And you made a really good point about how keeping, you know, your protein and your fat pretty static and just manipulating carbohydrates. What do you think about people who lower carbohydrates, but then want to increase their amount of fats, that sort of carb cycling? So yeah, I don't really agree with that too much for the typical individual, like there is some people who argue that we spoke about this last week on the podcast, but essentially lowering your lowering your carbs, increasing your fats will give your digestive system a break from digesting and absorbing those carbs and also potentially increasing insulin sensitivity as well. And increasing fats may be beneficial for hormone production if you are having like 0.3 grams per kilo of fats, which is very, very low. And I don't think many people do that uh, other than a contest prep when hormone production is inhibited anyway. So yeah, for the most people, I don't really think it's necessary. And what are your thoughts, Tia? Yeah, I would say the exact same thing. So I would recommend keeping protein and fat pretty static. And then I would just manipulate carbs slightly if you need to, if your energy expenditure does vary a lot day to day, but I probably wouldn't recommend like staying at the same amount of calories and significantly lowering down your carbs and increasing your fats, especially because you did say you want to do a lean bulk. And as we've spoken about before, you know, physiologically, fatty acids cannot be broken down into glucose or amino acids. So if you are eating in excessive amount of fat, then that will really just be stored as body fat. It doesn't even have the chance to be stored as muscle glycogen or muscle. 
So, when triglycerides oxidize, though, they split off into fatty acids and glycerol. Though. Oh, yes. The, the glycerol head can be formed into glucose, but, like, the glycerol head is, like, the smallest component of a triglyceride. So thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> this ties in nicely to the ne- uh, similar question, which is, how do you choose the right amount of macro slash macro ratio? What are the things to consider? So I guess just choosing the right, like, amount of macros, again, like, it doesn't have to be too complicated, guys. So choosing protein, honestly, anywhere between, like, 2 to 2.5 grams per kilogram of body weight. You can have your fats around 1 gram per kilogram of body weight. And then depending on your total calories, just make up the rest with carbohydrates, Yeah, I would answer this slightly differently and say it it depends a lot on the individual and their circumstances. So someone who is not a physique athlete, like they can have, there's like the, first of all, the dietary guidelines state around 20 to 35% of your calories coming from fat, 15 to 25% from protein and 45 to 65 from carbohydrate. So those are the guidelines for the general population the only thing to bear in mind is that these guidelines are for preventing chronic disease and obviously the young healthy population or and just healthy population uh does not have to worry about that yet if you uh, stay healthy gosh i hope not (laughs) so and then yes like tira said it does differ if you are a physique athlete probably it, it will be more beneficial to go on the lower spectrum for fat like one gram per kilo or slightly less and around 2.5 grams per kilo of protein and filling in the rest with carbs. Yeah, exactly. And But at the same time, if you're not a physique athlete, you know, you can go slightly higher fat and you can go slightly lower carb or mix it up. Just eat food at the end of the day, like to maintain your weight or to maintain a certain level of body composition. The main thing that it's going to come down to really is calories and also just getting sufficient protein for the average individual. Yeah, I agree. So the next question is asked by Lily. And it is, what about those ginseng, ashwagandha type supplements, propolis, extract, etc.? All right. So I guess the most common one here would be ashwagandha. And people on social media, you know, you've probably heard about people taking ashwagandha. And it is a form of herb and it's traditionally used in Indian medicine. Now, the health claims that come from ashwagandha are that, you know, it's a stress relief, it may modestly lower cortisol levels, it may help with anxiety, it may help with quality of sleep. And traditionally, it's actually been used in India for men to increase their testosterone levels and increase their sperm quality and fertility. Now, the thing is, though, is that there's not conclusive evidence on it, unfortunately, and I think that any benefit that it does have will really just be modest, you know, especially in terms of increasing testosterone levels and sperm quality. I'm pretty sure that the only evidence supports that if you're actually infertile. So it's not like you're going to take this magical herb and like have testosterone levels through the roof. And also, like, I think, again, like, lowering cortisol levels, very, very modest. But compared to other forms of just recovery and modalities for just stress relief, I don't know if it would really compare, and it's probably quite expensive. Neither Jack and I have actually experimented with this type of stuff. What would you say, Jack? Yeah, I would say it's very similar to a lot of other supplements out there. Like, they might give you a... I don't know, like a 0.01% increase or better, it doesn't compare to anything like sleep or meditation if you do meditation and just a, yeah, different other recovery modalities. Yeah, I would completely agree. I'd say just try to like nail the big blocks and the fundamentals. So getting at least seven to nine hours of good quality sleep per night and just trying to manage your stress and going for a walk outside, getting some fresh air, getting some sunlight. To be honest, I think overall that's probably going to contribute a lot more to reducing stress and anxiety and if you potentially have elevated cortisol levels compared to eating herbs. Mm. Yeah. All right. And I guess that kind of ties in very quickly to this next question, um, which was asked by Yusuf. Yusuf. 
Yusuf, thank you. Um, what is the minimum hours of sleep I should get? So just very quickly, the recommendations are seven to nine hours of good quality sleep each night and just having a regular sleep and wake cycle. Yeah, so minimum seven hours. Mm. Yeah, and we were actually thinking about putting out a post on our Instagram page about some basically strategies to increase your sleep because I know a lot of people struggle to get to sleep and basically set a decent sleep-wake cycle. So might be helpful. So the next question is asked by RC Fitness, which is, was the dietetics degree worth the money and time spent? Wow, what a question. <laughs> I'm going to be totally honest. The dietetics degree like robbed me. <laughs> well, thank God for Hexdet, but dietetics degree was pretty damn expensive. I don't know why they don't cover it under the Commonwealth, but it was only 1.5 years long and it was $42,000, which is insane because considering the bachelor degree was three years long and I think it was only around $24,000. But yeah, that's money-wise and time-wise. Jack, do you think it was worth it? I think I'm, I'll am i be take the more positive side to this and say that's not it's not necessarily well maybe it is a little bit negative because forty two thousand dollars is a hell of a lot of money but um <laughs> yeah i agree it's a lot but to look on the bright side we probably might not have this podcast if we hadn't done the master's degree and we wouldn't have gotten a lot of client experience and yeah like i probably agree with tiara that the undergraduate formed the basis of our like biochemical knowledge and most of our knowledge that we have right now but the master's degree was sort of like the icy on the cake like dealing with a lot of client-based interventions and more depth analysis on particular issues like mainly chronic diseases like type 1 diabetes type 2 diabetes uh, gastrointestinal problems and things like that yeah i completely agree like i loved undergrad and like jack said i think we learned the majority of our knowledge just from you know having studies in sports nutrition and exercise physiology and anatomy and biochemistry and all that awesome stuff which i absolutely love but that kind of that gave us you know our fundamental knowledge but the master's degree is really about applying that knowledge and putting it into practice. And I, I, I like, I'm really actually really glad that I did decide to do the master's degree because, you know, it taught me how to counsel clients and counsel patients and really speak with people. And I think more than anything, the master's degree taught me to have a healthy relationship with food, which damn, that's probably changed my life. So that's just been amazing. So I think it's definitely, it's expensive, but it definitely is worth it. And also it's so important in order to get your dietetics master's degree, because that is kind of the gateway into becoming a qualified sports dietitian. So in order to do the sports dietetics course here in Australia, you need to have a master's of dietetics. So yeah, Jack and I had to do that in order to become in future sports dietitians. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, it's not all bad. It's just pretty expensive, but yeah, no, it's it's certainly not bad at all. It is a it is a humongous learning experience, mm. and you do get a lot of opportunities for sure. Yeah, and I would encourage either do I would encourage any tertiary style education um, after high school, whether it be like a certificate based or a bachelor followed by a master's, even taking it to a PhD. But I do think seeking a a further knowledge is definitely like 100% worthwhile. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm so thankful for university and I'm so thankful for all the knowledge and the, you know, everything I've been taught. And I've just really been taught how to be a critical thinker. And when I'm told something, I don't just like take that information. I ask why or how, you know, and I really question things. So that's what it certainly taught me, which is just invaluable. So, yeah, and that's why we're able to answer a lot of these questions without looking anything up because it's just applied thinking. And once you know the, let's say like a, the, how the biochemical pathway actually works regarding carbohydrate or fat metabolism, you can then apply it to a lot of other questions and answers. So yeah, Mm -hmm. but moving on. So Cody asks, how nervous were you guys to step on stage? 
To be totally honest, I was excited as hell. I really, I wasn't that nervous. Yeah, I really wasn't that nervous. I'd been waiting for it for so many years and so long and I, I'd done so much practice with my posing coach and I just felt ready and damn, I was just so excited. What, what about you? So my answer is like, I'd already gone through so much, like especially that the feeling that probably every male and most females feel as well as like just that comp prep feeling right at the end where energy is really low. So like, to be honest, like getting up on stage was like the least thing on my mind, like, cause you've already dealt with so much stuff to that point. And especially being a hundred percent ready with posing, which is why I believe you should start posing at least 20 weeks out, especially if it's your first time competing. So yeah, like it just all comes down to that moment and you've done so much preparation that there's no need to feel nervous really. So you weren't nervous? You were just like, get me up there, man. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I didn't really have that outlook either. It was just like a part of the, the thing and I just like, just did it part of the day. Just like how eating was part of the day as well and and yeah. Well, how excited are you to get up on stage next time in 2021? Yeah, I'm actually pretty keen. Like, especially if I can stay injury free for the next two years or so or uh, forever, that would be nice. But like, I just don't want another injury to set me back a long time. So just playing, trying to play it safe as much as possible. Yeah, well, my fingers are crossed and the way you're progressing now, I don't think that's going to happen. Sweet. All right. So this next question Jack will be good at answering this one. And this is asked by Sam Hodgson again. So it says, thoughts on becoming fluffy during a bulk and how fluffy is too fluffy? Why did you say I would be good at this? (laughs) Well, because I've, you know, like this is your area, (laughs) the fluffy area. (laughs) So, yeah. I'm not calling Jack fluffy, by the way. (laughs) So yeah, this is a good question and is there's again, it's very individualized and there is a large gray area. So what a large area of what is right. But I kind of like what Alberto Nunez says because he is a firm believer on sometimes it's your ideal body weight for bulking might not be a place you enjoy. So for someone like me, that might be in order to be most productive with my bulk, I do actually have to get up to body fats, which are around 15 to 20%, which are areas that like I'm pretty happy within 12 to 15. But after when I go from 15 to 20, I don't really like the way I look and food gets ridiculously high and I feel a bit sluggish. Cardiovascular um, performance goes down as well. But for others, they might really like enjoying all the food and being heavier, looking a bit fuller, and they might feel a lot stronger as well at that point at that point. So the, I think at the point it becomes unproductive is when one, your cardiovascular health suffers a lot. So if you're doing even eight reps of squat and you're puffing, either you have to reduce body weight or improve your cardiovascular fitness. And some other indicators are just poor sleep, complete lack of appetite. So having to force feed yourself. What do you think? What are some other ones? Yeah, I would even say something like varying heart rate as well. But I think something that really comes down again is, yeah, like Jack said, cardiorespiratory fitness. So even if you're not doing resistance exercise, even if you're just like walking up a steep set of of stairs or like walking up a hill and you are getting puffed as shit, like that might be an indication too that it might be taking a little bit too far. But at the same time, you know, you can still be carrying a bit of extra weight and actually have good cardiorespiratory fitness. And this comes back again to being fat and fit because even if you can still do a significant amount of exercise and be very fit, but still be holding quite a bit of weight. And that is actually more protective for you, mortality wise than actually being skinny and unfit. Yeah, and for males, I would say probably going above 20% body fat is where I would start to say, yeah, this is not probably not going to be that productive anymore, especially if you're looking to do a competition. If you start dieting at 20%, it's going to be very long, very hard, and you're going to have to suffer at the end as well and probably lose uh, more muscle than we would like as well. Mm-hmm. 
And I'd also say that you're probably getting a little bit too fluffy when you keep gaining weight and yeah, you're noticing an increase in body fat, but your strength and your performance isn't necessarily going up. So that's an indication that you've kind of hit a productivity threshold for building muscle and you're not necessarily at that time putting on any more, but you're just literally gaining body fat, which is very unproductive for your performance goals, for your body composition goals, and probably your overall health as well. So I would really, really assess your training performance. Yeah, and that's also when a coach comes in handy to help make those decisions with you and may maybe steer you onto a path that you might not like as much, but might be beneficial, more beneficial for you in the long run. So yeah. Mm-hmm. So next question is by Ali and she asks suggestions for eating in a surplus, but still always hungry. So let's address the first part first of this and like, why might that be the case? And I'll let you go first. Well, I think for example, this would probably be pretty common coming straight out of a comp prep. And when you enter your recovery diet, because yes, you are in a slight surplus, but again, because your metabolic rate is still slightly lower than it was previously to starting prep, you still not might not be eating that much food. And also coming out of a comp prep, you are still very heavily food focused and you are hungry and you do want to eat a lot more food. So it's completely normal to be hungry. I want to say that first off. And what if they're not coming out of a comp prep? So I would say that if you're not coming out of a comp prep and you're just eating normally, but you're still always hungry, I would have a good look at your dietary choices. So I would see if you are maximizing the volume of your food. So for example, if you're eating high volume foods that are slightly lower in energy, or if you're eating small amounts of food that are very, very energy dense. So for example, compare like two oranges compared to like a tablespoon of peanut butter. So two oranges will be a lot more voluminous and a lot more satisfying and it will take you longer to eat those and they have, you know, more water in them and more fiber too. Or compared to just one tablespoon of peanut butter, which would have around the same amount of total calories and energy as two oranges, but like it's just such a small size and it's not going to satiate you for very long. So I would have a look at your food choices. I'd have a look at your total daily protein intake and making sure that you're spreading out that protein evenly across your meals because protein itself can be very, very satiating. So not like having a super low protein breakfast that's only like 10 grams and then like 100 grams at dinner or something like that. And I'd also look at your fiber intake. So making sure that you're eating enough fiber, uh, hitting at least uh, the recommendations around 15 grams per thousand calories. But if your gut can tolerate it, it's completely fine to eat above this as well. Fiber is going to be very satiating too. You know, drinking water throughout the day as well. What else would you say, Jack? So the first thing I would look at would probably not be the food choices, but rather your Uh, basically diet history so if you've been dieting frequently without much periods of maintenance or surplus in calories then you don't really have enough time to build up a foundation of daily energy requirements so and that's where the term yo-yo dieting comes in and why it's not very beneficial because you do get stuck in a rut and basically your your basal metabolic rate can potentially go down and basically your daily energy requirements stay pretty static and they don't go up either so yeah and this is this is quite common in males and females and again it might be productive again that you should probably look to see a health professional or a dietitian for this but potentially again this is for anyone not tailored for the person who asked the question in particular but going in a period where they gain a decent amount of body fat back up if they're constantly staying lean or a prolonged period of energy surplus where they can really uh, increase their like metabolism, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But in terms of like food choices, really just focus, try to focus on whole foods. So try to eat more fruits and vegetables, try to eat more protein, really try to eat whole grains as well, and potentially sticking to meals and carbohydrate sources that will 
offer a lower GI, so glycemic index, so that, you know, your food is digested slower and you have a steady stream of glucose being delivered to your bloodstream so you don't have peaks and troughs of blood glucose, which will reflect in your energy levels too. But it's just going to take time. You know, we've all been there. We've all been super hungry and it can be frustrating when you want to eat more, but your metabolism just isn't quite at that mark as well. So yeah. Yeah. I'd also recommend looking up Stephanie Buttermore on Instagram or YouTube as well, because she has basically started this journey for herself where she has been suffering from basically constant hunger, fatigue for a prolonged period of time, despite being in an energy surplus and stuff like that, gaining weight. So she's decided to do this thing called going all in, where she basically eats to satiation every day, is gaining quite a lot of weight quite aggressively. But yeah, it's interesting. I'm looking forward to doc- looking at her documentation of it and seeing how she goes because it is very, very common for people to basically suffer from this and it can create uh, like a poor mental outlook on food and constantly being hungry is pretty horrible as well. Yeah, exactly. It takes away from other parts of life and I've certainly been there too, just being so food focused and so hungry all the time and damn, you can't enjoy other things because you're literally just always thinking about your next meal and you're just always distracted. And oh, it's it's really, really frustrating. So I totally feel you. But yeah, like Jack said, and in Stephanie Buttermore's case, it usually just does come down to you need to gain perhaps a little bit more weight to normalize it. So this next question, and it's asked by Beck90, which says tips for overactive traps slash developing your lats. So yeah, I actually had this issue with my own back development. And for me, it was more my rear delts. Whenever I would pull, do any pulling movement, my arms and rear delts would take over. And I basically grew massive rear delts, but not much anywhere else. So, and yeah, a lot of this started at the start of this year, that's when I started to turn it around. And for me, it really came down to, and I don't think this is much of an issue for females, but us guys like to try and lift heavy and ego lift a bit. And I really toned that down and still obviously chose a weight where my, the intensity was high. So I was still giving around an eight or nine um, perceived exertion. But for starters, I really tried to lower, slow down the eccentric portion of the movement, which is when you release the weight and keep my scapula engaged throughout that process as well and not completely releasing all my, losing all the tension from my back. And then something else you can do as well, which might help is um, pausing for a half second in the fully contracted position. And I wouldn't really recommend doing this uh, forever, but just doing it so you can actually feel that muscle group working. And then once you do have that mind muscle connection, you can then go into lifting normally. And yeah, some other things you could do is uh, targeting that area with increased volume. So before you do your heaviest uh, exercises. So for example, if it's your lats, you could do some uh, cable pullovers, um, very light to start off with. So you get blood into that area and can actually feel it. And then you might have an improved um, targeting when you actually do your proper movements. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And even just relating this to any other exercise, I think there's huge merit to the mind-muscle connection and actually being able to feel a muscle working. I'm sure a lot of girls can probably relate to this too with their glutes, like actually warming up your glutes before you do like a glute hip thrust, for example. It just can make a world of difference to the exercise. And I'm with you as well on lats. Like my back didn't fully start to develop until I actually started doing lat pull downs correctly and actually feeling the stretch in my lats during that eccentric component of the movement. So it makes a huge difference to be able to feel the muscle. So this next question is from Cody Heron Fitness and this one's for Jack. And it says, how does one get quads like Jack? How? <laughs> uh, I would say genetics, maybe. Is it genetics? <laughs> Not blood, sweat, and tears and like drop set squats? <laughs> well, I'm not actually that, sorry, I'm not actually that short. I'm at, I'm 180 centimeters, but my legs are quite short. 
So when you have a shorter muscle belly, it looks bigger. So that's mm-hmm. it. It's not really effort. It's just genetics. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think you work pretty damn hard on your quads too. You can't deny that. <laughs> yeah, it just comes down to progressive overload, uh, choosing exercises that work for you. And yeah, ultimately, I am fortunate in that I do have good insertions and they my muscle bellies are short. So it just looks more favorable, like someone who could have way more muscle on their legs than me. But because I have decent muscle bellies, like it, um, mine might, might look more aesthetic. So Yeah, but also just like your exercise selection too. And you must get a fantastic mind-muscle connection with your quads during squats and leg press and seeing you do those Bulgarian split squats too. Yeah, I've also been training for seven years now and I played soccer before that. So I've been very active my whole life. And I I do think that being active and playing sports before doing your weight training undoubtedly helps a lot, like especially more for anaerobic activities like sprinting versus something like marathons or cross country like Tierra did is probably not as helpful. Damn it. (laughs) I did grow up though doing like a lot of swimming and a lot of hockey though and a lot of um, softball. So I think that's really contributed to my upper body strength for sure. So Mm. and yeah, if my friend Guy is listening to this, he did swimming growing up and his back is like, like very, very developed, like way more developed than mine. So and that's another testament to show that, especially yeah, more anaerobic style like gymnastics, swimming, oh, tennis. G- gymnasts just have the most amazing body. Sometimes I wish my parents would have got me into the gymnastics so that I actually had a six pack now because oh, gymnasts are incredible. And I've also learned from Kate that ballerinas have really nice calves. So because they're always on their tippy toes, they don't have very nice toes, but they do have nice calves. <laughs> All right, so which which question is next? So Kyle asks, perfect scenario, off-season, then prep time period. Hmm. All right, so I think this is going to be highly individual depending on how long of an improvement season you actually need to make significant changes to developing your physique. But I would say, you know, at least at least a year. I would say at least a good year for an improvement season before you start like actually preparing for a competition, but it's going to be so highly variable. Yeah. And when we had our podcast with Joey, he made a good point that younger individuals can probably afford to take less time off. There are arguments for both ways because obviously when you're younger, you have less muscle, but you also gain muscle faster. So newbies. (laughs) So yeah. So obviously the argument for is that because you can gain muscle faster you might as well milk out competing as a teen and junior where and then once you finish as a junior then you can take maybe three or four years off and get ready for the big boys in the men's and but then there are people like anthony who competed season a he's a junior and he won his pro card so he is insane man he's nuts but I would say so, in, like after you take your your oh, individual. And sorry, I'll also sorry. I'll also mention that it depends. Uh, we're obviously assuming bodybuilding, but it's very different for physique and fitness and other divisions. Like obviously for men's fitness, you don't need to make as much muscle gains. Um, yeah, and then so I'd say that after you take your individual amount of time off for your improvement season, what you're wa- going to want to do before you actually start a, a prep will be a mini cut or a cut. So anywhere between probably six to eight weeks to lose like one to 1.5% of your body weight per week, just to get yourself in a good position to prep. So that's currently what I'm doing. I'm six weeks into an eight week cut. So I've only got two weeks left, which is pretty exciting. But yeah, losing a good amount of weight during that six to eight weeks and then like I would say anywhere, probably like up to five kilograms at least. And then what you're going to do for the next six to eight weeks is do a maintenance period. So try to maintain that body weight 
but really try to get your calories up as high as possible so that you can maintain your body weight on as many calories and especially as many carbohydrates as you possibly can. And then I would recommend starting a prep at least 25 weeks out because it's always better to not be racing towards the finish line, actually to be ready early so that you can eat up into the show for the last three or four weeks to really fill out and feel better and just look better. So that that would be my recommendations. And that's what I'm planning to do for my season A 2020 prep. So I'm, my prep starts on the 31st of August and that'll be 25 weeks out from my first show. What would you add to that? Uh, probably nothing, to be honest. Yeah, I think you made some great points. And uh, the Rive Stronger podcast also is a great uh, resource to listen to, to. He talks a lot about those sorts of topics too. And yeah, so moving on to the next question. Maddie asks, do you have any advice for trying to train slash diet with autoimmune hypothyroidism? So essentially, there's a difference between autoimmune hypothyroidism and just regular hypothyroidism. So autoimmune hypothyroidism is essentially an autoimmune disease, and that's when your immune system attacks your body. So your own immune system attacks healthy cells in your body, resulting in a disease status. And a type of hypothyroidism autoimmune disease would be Hashimoto's disease, Or you can have just hypothyroidism, which can be a result of not getting enough iodine in the diet. And iodine, the easiest way to get that is really just to buy iodized salt or eat lots of seafood and green leafy vegetables. Yeah, so in terms of the treatment in regards to diet and exercise, essentially with the autoimmune component, you'll be supplementing with T3, which is thyroxine, whereas those that have the non-autoimmune will be able to increase their production of thyroxine through diet. Whereas if you have the autoimmune component, you can't actually do that. And yeah, we do have to, we do have some considerations regarding diet and exercise. So you might have lower energy levels, your energy metabolism will be lower. So you'll gain weight easier than other individuals. And hopefully the majority of that will be taken care of by the medication. So working with a dietitian and a endocrinologist is very important. And yeah, tailoring it to your specific circumstances, so how you feel. Um, so what are your current energy levels? Are, are uh, Does it affect your sleep at all? What is your current energy output and energy maintenance? So yeah, taking all those things into consideration, but essentially your standard healthy diet obviously still applies to everybody. And yeah. Yeah, that's a good answer. Okay, so this next question is asked by Anvir. And it says, can taking birth control limit muscle gains? Now, this is a really good question. And it's also something that I'm very interested in as well, because I am on a form of birth control myself. I have the Implanon. So the Implanon, also known as the bar, is like this very small bar that goes on the inside of your arm and it can stay there for up to three years. And essentially what that does is it releases synthetic progesterone into the body. And progesterone helps to form like a mucus layer and that helps stops you from menstruating so that you don't get pregnant. Woohoo! But I've always been really curious about this as well, you know, like saying I am having this form of synthetic hormone in my body, would that limit my rate of muscle gain? And also, there are many other forms of contraception that females take, including the pill, including like IUDs, there's like vaginal rings, there's a whole bunch of different things, obviously condoms, but that's not hormonal, that's just very protective. But yeah, there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can use contraception. But to be honest, the research just is not conclusive on whether or not this actually limits a female's potential to build muscle mass. So I'm not confident in saying that it does. And I've for, I've been on, I've had my implant on ever since I was 16 now. And, you know, with proper diet and training, I have been able to build a very significant amount of strength. And for my shape, I have been able to build a good amount of muscle and I've got a good muscle foundation, which I'm very proud of. So I would not say that taking contraception actually does, well, 
anecdotally for me is not limited my rate of growth. But my best recommendation would actually to be go over to YouTube and watch Stephanie Buttermore's video on contraception and the different forms of contraception and their influence on exercise because that is actually a very comprehensive video and I think it's very interesting. So I'll lead you over to her channel. But yeah. All right. So next question by Becca90. Fave workout gear. What's your fave? I'm not into as much as Tira what I wear to the gym. So I just wear whatever, like whatever's accumulated over the years. I actually go to Kmart and we go Everlast. buy Everlast from Kmart. <laughs> I think Everlast is a cool brand. I'm not going to lie. I think it's a cool name. Thanks. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I would accept a sponsor- sponsorship from them. But yeah, to be honest, I I don't really Dude, that I'd would be whatever. epic to be sponsored by Kmart. You'd have so much stuff. I wear a lot of the ICN stuff because I got it for free. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Just as long as you're wearing clothes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, I'd have to say, I definitely have to say that mine would be rider wear. And speaking of, speaking of rider wear, I just went kind of crazy these past few days because they've had their end of financial year sales. And I had a bit of treat yourself moment and I may have spent $800 <laughs> on new workout gear. Weren't you just talking about your hex debt or something? Oh. <laughs> Dude, I got priorities. <laughs> I need to wear scrunch bottom shorts to the gym before I pay off my hex debt. <laughs> no, um, but yeah, I, and I also want to thank Sophia and Sharni Louise from Instagram. They're both two riderwear models who are sponsored and I use their codes to get extra money off, which was awesome. So even though I spent $800, which I'm still trying to justify, I did save money. But yeah, I basically now have like every rider wear outfit in every color and like shorts and long tights and sports bras and long like shirts and stuff. But I'm so excited. Like, and also I'm just like, I haven't actually bought myself nice workout gear like ever in my life really and especially working at uq sport for so many years i've never felt that it's actually been very appropriate for me to wear something like a sports crop just because i'm a staff member and i don't know i've just kind of always felt a little bit weird about it but now that we've joined worlds like i feel a lot more confident there, like wearing more actual workout clothes and there's just something about having new workout gear. You just feel so damn good during your workout. You just get a huge confidence boost and you look good and you feel good. And yeah, um, so I'm pretty damn excited to wear all of my new gear at Worlds. Tomorrow, it's leg day. Keen. I spend so much money. <laughs> $800 and you couldn't even buy me like some a shirt or something. What you talking about? Hey, you didn't you didn't say you wanted anything. <laughs> well, that's what a gift is. It's unasked for, but we'll but move on. The way the way I'm trying to justify it though is that like no one is actually at UQ Sport this week, so I've actually last minute had to cover a whole bunch of shifts so I'm actually closing the gym every night this week and opening every single morning next week so I was kind of like well I didn't actually have these shifts at the beginning of the week so technically I didn't have this money so technically if I buy this stuff it's free right <laughs> I also bought a hundred dollars worth of Macromike peanut butter last night <laughs> I need to control myself I'm just online shopping guys <laughs> mm, very unlike Tierra. I don't know what's happening <laughs> I usually only spend money on like rent and groceries, but now I'm just going wild. <laughs> so the next question is by Daniel and he asks pros and cons of following macro split versus diet plan. So I think we can answer this pretty quickly and say the main issue is that uh, is food variety. So if you're on a food diet plan for like a full year and you're eating the same things every day, then obviously there's not much food variety. Food variety is very important for micronutrients and trace minerals and not just your typical like vitamin C, vitamin D, etc., but also the extra polyphenols, different types of fiber you're getting and things like that. Yeah, I would completely agree. Just variety and diversity is huge. I'd say one of the only real pros to following an actual diet plan is that it's very structured and it's it would be easy to prepare. It could very 
easily be fit into your schedule and like meal planning and stuff like that. It might just take a little bit of stress relief off for some people. It might work better for other people. And it's probably still a fine idea as long as you are still getting a good variety of food within that diet plan. And yeah, Tierra and I basically follow diet plans right now because we eat so similar every day. But we do try and uh, still rotate some foods out and just get different types of food diversity in as well. Yeah, mainly just different types of grains, fruits, vegetables. And we have like a different protein source every single meal. So it ain't too bad. We're not terrible dietitians. So we'll probably wrap up pretty soon because we're uh, we're coming up to 45 minutes. So we'll answer a couple more. All right. So this next question actually comes from one of my clients named Chloe, who's competing in bikini in season B. Super exciting. But essentially what she's asked is for more voluminous carbohydrate sources because right now she's finding that 80 grams of oats just isn't really filling her up anymore. So... Jack, what would you say are some more voluminous sources of carbohydrates you could eat during a deficit? So my ones go to were probably either nice cream or potatoes, pumpkin, yeah, and salad, bro. <laughs> <laughs> how many carbs, how much salad would you need to eat to get the same amount of carbs as 80 grams of oats? <laughs> well, that's why it's so filling because you eat so much. Jesus, Jack's just one big freaking walking kale leaf. Um, yeah, and I uh, the one last thing I'd probably add to that is just air popped popcorn. So just get yourself like a $15 popcorn maker from Kmart. And like literally you can have like 30 or 50 grams of popcorn. And it's so voluminous. It's just amazing. And I usually just sprinkle a little bit of nutritional yeast on it and some salt. And it's a good time. So yeah, air pop popcorn's awesome. But yeah. Any food and prep is a good time. Eh? <laughs> yeah, but you want to get the most bang for your buck. This is. What's your opinion on salad, though? <laughs> my opinion on salad? I love salad, man. I might even love salad more than you. <laughs> I would argue I started. I started eating big salads a lot. Like. I agree. Earlier. I don't even eat salads anymore. <laughs> they were only in prep. <laughs> listeners you don't eat salads you're a dietitian oh my god (laughs) other ways to get vegetables guys (laughs) okay so last question of the day so this is from beck 90 and she asks what to expect on show day would love a rundown of a typical show so what would you expect on show day so for a show like icn which most of the listeners would probably be competing in So essentially you uh, go there on the day, usually a bit earlier to uh, collect all your your number, your little pack, um, your wristband for your people who are coming backstage with you. And then, yeah, essentially you chill out backstage. It's really important to relax, um, to not get too stressed on the day. And essentially just looking at your schedule, having it all planned out when you're going on, um, scheduling hair and makeup and your tan, um, scheduling time before to pump up, um, eat your food, um, do whatever stuff that needs to be done, go to the toilet. Take your salt shot. (laughs) Got to schedule time for that. (laughs) And yeah, that's... It, it all runs pretty smoothly. There's, there's honestly not that much, there's not that much stuff. So yeah, I'd say it runs a hell of a lot smoother for the guys than the girls because the girls have to get there like hours before to get hair and makeup done, which takes a long time, like not complaining because you look so gorgeous. But yeah, it does take a lot more time. And I'm usually so jealous of guys because guys just don't have to worry about that. Like if you're a good looking guy like you... <laughs> You don't gotta you don't have to worry about a thing. Like guys just really need to put on their trunks and get on their dream tan and you know, you'll have your coach there and you'll usually have some friends there as well. Or like if you've booked in with the actual tanning company, the tanning company will tan you there. And yeah. Eat, carb up, salt up, pump up, get on stage, and just have a good time. Like seriously. Like, be friendly, speak to a bunch of people. You're going to see so many people that you know from social media. Get as many photos as you possibly can because the day just flies by. And yeah, I'd say really just have fun with it too. Yeah. Sweet. All right. So very last question of the day. We always finish on one thing that we learned this week. 
So I'll let you go first, Tiara. Okay. I guess that's fair because you did go first last week. Mine is pretty quick and I learned this from my little sister, Mariah, who absolutely loves animals and loves cats in particular. But she actually taught me that cats actually only meow at humans and cats have actually, through evolution... have like developed, uh, I don't think the word developed is the right word, but they have learnt or they just, they only meow at humans. They actually don't meow at any other animal or any other cat, which is really interesting. So it's like their way of communicating with us. I've actually seen us. a cat meow at another cat though. No, you have not. <laughs> she told me there was a 10 year study done on cat meows. Mm. Uh, I'm hoping this is evidence-based. <laughs> But yeah, anyway, I don't know. That's the meows from cats to humans is their way of communicating with us. And I guess they're probably either saying, I'm here or feed me tuna. Meow. So, yes, <laughs> that that was my education for the week. So what I learned was something about the placebo effect and how really intense that it can be and how beneficial in a sense. So for those of you who don't know, basically the placebo effect is... A benefit from a drug or treatment, even though that drug or treatment has no properties. So, for example, it would be taking a pain relief pill, uh, which is an empty pill, could just be a sugar pill, and gaining pain relief from that. So, it's basically uh, you're either mentally or physically uh, forming the benefits yourself. So, it's almost like magic. So there was this study and there were three groups in this study. One group was just standard resistance training. The other one was given anabolics, so steroids in colloquial terms. And the other group was said they were giving steroids but were given nothing. So it would have either been just a blank pill or something similar. And essentially the the group just doing resistance training gained the least amount and the steroid placebo group uh, gained the second most amount and then the actual steroid group gained the most. So the middle group there actually gained more than the group who didn't weren't given a placebo. So yeah, pretty extraordinary. Damn, that's amazing. So that pretty much shows that, you know, if people just believe and for that would hugely tie into supplements as well because even if people are taking something like you know, creatine or protein powder or something like this, but they truly believe it's going to have some magical effect, they're probably more likely to train harder and lift heavier weights and train for longer. And that's going to equate to more muscle gain. Yeah, I believe that was the main reason behind the results is that they they thought they would do better. So they did better and they basically trained harder, uh, etc. So yeah. Now we can see why so many people preach BCAAs. <laughs> yeah. Get big. All right, cool. So that ends the 27th episode for us today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in for another podcast episode. We really appreciate all the support. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag Bodybuilding Dietitians, and we'll catch you next week. See you later, guys. 